As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. I used to think that there were sheep and there were cows. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the On Farm podcast. I am Anna Davis. I then learned that there were, you know, yows and bullocks and heifers and steers and stots and gimmers and, you know, all these kinds of things. Today, another lovely chat, actually. I've just, this year, just had a hunger for hearing people's inspirational stories. And so we've got another one for you today. I have been chatting to Lynn, who is one half of Lynn and Sandra from Lynnbreck Croft. They, as you may know, have featured on television. They've got a book coming out and um, just got a really interesting story about how they started the Croft six years ago and all of the developments and happenings that have taken place since then. So I'm basically going to hand you over to Lynn to tell you her story. So we're located in the Cairngorms National Park. Uh, our nearest town is Granton on Spey. We're a registered croft, but we're quite a large croft at 150 acres. The main homestead is at about 350 metres above sea level and we face due south. So that means that we get all the sunshine, but it means that we, we also get all the uh, prevailing weather. So that makes it an interesting place to farm. We're just a small setup and we have uh, we run a, a range of enterprises here, um, but our main kind of food production enterprises are we have a small fold of Highland cattle uh, for beef. We keep rare breed pigs, uh, Oxford Sandy and Blacks. We have pasture hens and we have lots of bees for making this nice honey production. Superb introduction, Lynn. Thank you. Presumably, Sandra, who runs the croft with you, is not here because is she outdoors feeding animals or what? what's, she, what's Sandra up to at the moment? That's exactly why you've got me and not Sandra, because she's the one. I always say that here, Sandra's the one that actually does all the work and I'm the one that talks about it because I'm the one that's from. Uh, I, I'm blessed with a, a, a growing up in Northern Ireland where the culture is you talk lots. So um, so Sandra's the one that keeps everything running. <laughs> I'm sure that I'm sure that you do as well. But I, but I guess in any partnership, you've it, it runs better if you've got predefined roles, I suppose. So you've, yeah. you've obviously found your your niche, each of you. What sort of background do you come from, Lynn? Has farming been in your blood since you were in short trousers or is it kind of um, new to you? Tell us a bit about how you got into this. So we never meant to be farmers. Uh, we kind of fell into this uh, way of living, way of life, kind of by accident. So so my background is I, I grew up in Northern Ireland. I went to university and studied archaeology. Mm. But I always had this kind of burning passion for the outdoors. I was always really active as a young person. Worked in various jobs for, I don't know, 10 years or so. And then found myself um, kind of transitioning into a role with the National Trust as an apprentice ranger. 
So really kind of taking a big career change in my kind of early 30s. And really that's the kind of trajectory we've been on since. Sandra, similar story, um, trained as a librarian. So very different. Again, around the same age, um, got into the apprenticeship with the National Trust for a Ranger. And that's where we met. And really it was then that we had this kind of shared vision, shared kind of dream of, of, of working the land, of really kind of living much closer to nature, a really kind of idealised dream at that stage. But we were kind of really dedicated to towards achieving it. So we, we kind of quit our jobs. We were working down uh, just outside the edge of uh, London um, for a national trust. Moved to Scotland. Sandra is half Scottish. Her mum's from Scotland. So this was the kind of the natural place for us to head to. And after a few years living and working in the borders uh, as tree planters, we uh, we were looking for land. Um, long story short, we found Limbrett Croft, fell in love with it. Knew we were in trouble because we couldn't actually afford it at the time. But um, moved heaven and earth and and that's where we found ourselves today and I guess the reason why I say we kind of accidentally came into this way of living and, and working is because we were looking for somewhere that was maybe about five acres. Uh, you know, we had a dream of the kitchen garden, we had the dream of the hens. Limbrek is 150 acres. And so we were put into into a position where, you know, you look at the land and you think, so what do we do here? Do we just let it do its own thing and we have our little kitchen garden? Or do we actually see if we can work the land using all the knowledge that we've gained as uh, apprentice rangers with the National Trust about nature and ecology? And that was the decision that we made to turn Limbrek into a fully functioning food production, farming with nature, regenerative agriculture hub. Wow. So, so you've used some skills that you've picked up over the years working in the National Trust and things like that. Yeah. You must have gained an awful lot of skills and learned an awful lot since you started. Mm. Um, what kind of springs to mind as, as having been like kind of the biggest learning journey since you took over the Croft? I mean, I think when we when we started out on our on our sort of farming and crofting journey, it, it was it was really pretty scary to begin with because, you know, not only were we having to learn, you know, a whole new kind of base of knowledge, we were having to learn a new language, you know, talking about animals in different ways. You know, I used to think that there were sheep and there were cows. I then learned that there were, you know, yows and bullocks and heifers and steers and stots and gimmers and, you know, all these kinds of things, which really at the start seemed pretty overwhelming. There was that side, which was a huge learning curve. And it was difficult at the in the early days to feel confident about what we were doing because we were looking at the land. We didn't really have the background knowledge of, of farming. We also didn't have any money to invest in what was in effect what I call a, a semi-derelict agricultural unit. No fences, no sheds, no water supply. You know, there was a, a private well for, for the little wooden cabin that we live, you know, we have on site. But so, so there was really nothing to get started. So what we had to use, and this is really the foundation of the, the model of the business, was what can we do that's really kind of going to cost the minimum that we can generate an income from, but really is working in harmony with everything that we already have? That's one of the questions I'm I'm really keen to understand, actually, and I'm not expecting mm -hmm. you to reveal anything confidential. But, you know, if, if you speak to somebody who perhaps grows several hundred acres of potatoes or they might have, you know, 1,500 sheep and 800 cattle, it's kind of easier to understand how they make a living because they've got economies of scale. Sure. Can you explain, you know, as I say, without giving away anything private, the, some of the challenges involved with making a living uh, on a croft? Now, I know you're a big, at the big end of crofting, but it must, yeah. it must be challenging, is it not? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'd love to say that actually we've unlocked the secret to how to make your millions in farming. We have not done that. <laughs> but we always wanted to be here full time, Anna. So that was always our goal. So there was a number of things that we did really to to bring Limbrek up to speed. You know, this is six years on now to where it's a, you know, a, a sort of fully working farm and we're both working here full time. We don't we don't have any kind of off farm salary jobs, so to speak. So so the first thing was um and it was based on a bit of advice that somebody gave us was work with what you've got. So it was looking at the land that we have and thinking about the context, thinking about the conditions, thinking about the soil type, thinking about the weather systems and thinking, right, what animals are going to work here for us? You know, are we going to buy in sort of larger continental breeds that will need housing over the winter? Or are we going to buy in something like a Highlander, which is built for this condition and which has very, very low overheads, particularly at the start? So it was this kind of way of thinking that we decided to we use to kind of decide how we would choose the, the enterprises that we have, the animal enterprises we have. The next thing was what ones can we set up at relative low cost, but which are going to provide a really quite a quick return? And the most obvious one was pastured eggs. OK, so, you know, you know yourself, if you've had eggs fresh from a farm, nothing like what you buy in the shop. Like, absolutely. Oh, yes. You know, you wonder what where they get the ones, you know. know. We've got Abs- hens at home, so I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, just incredible. I call them little kind of protein bombs of gold. And so what we did was we started to sell uh, we got a few hens in started to sell surplus at an honesty box started to build up trade got more hens built that enterprise up and then started to run it as a subscription club so we're five miles from our nearest town we didn't have time to spend on sales and marketing because we were trying to set up a business so we needed to know that our produce was going to go out we didn't need to think about it we didn't need to spend hours kind of flogging cheap eggs or flogging them to anybody because we had a glut we just knew they'd go so we set up something that was called egg club and egg clubs a really simple model whereby people pay up front and in return they get a box of eggs delivered to their door once a week the delivery route takes a couple of hours all the eggs are gone for the week the money comes into our account in advance so it's really really simple effective setup and what's nice about it is that we get out every week and talk to our customers and that's lovely when we started to sell our meat produce we started to realize that even though we were sort of I would say at the higher end of uh, of the cost, you know, pricing of it because of, you know, the story we were telling about, you know, farming with nature and the work that we were doing. We still really weren't making any money. You know, we were kind of breaking even, but you're looking at it going like, is this right? You know, is, you know, and it really, really highlights to you the price of food and you go, blimey, you know, this is, this is frightening. So we started to think, well, how can we add value? Because we could, we, we could go make one or two decisions here, right, Anna? We could either get more animals, but can our land, you know, truly sustain and, you know, live on the land in a regenerative capacity in a way that we're farming with nature? Or if we get more animals on, are we going to start to tip that balance in the opposite way? So we decided to not go down that route. So we decided to go down a route of adding value to the produce that we had. So um, a couple of years in, uh, there was a, a there was a, an, a, an option to apply for um, a business, an interest free business loan from a charity called the Organic Research Centre. And actually, I've just seen that they've just released um, an opportunity for people to apply this year called the Dean Organic Fund. And you can basically apply for a pot of cash, interest free, five years to do on a diversification enterprise. So we applied for that, got it, and put in a small micro butchery on the croft. And what that meant was that we could start to take our produce, so take, I always use the example of like a pork belly, right? You take a pork belly, uh, you cut it into slices and it's maybe a pound a kilo. 
you take pork belly, you know, you cure it and you smoke it and you sell it as, uh, you know, cured, smoked, streaky bacon. You're maybe getting five, ten pound a kilo for it. So you're adding value through a fairly simple process. Now, obviously, there's a learning curve to go with that. But what we started to do was think, well, maybe that's actually the route to go down. So we started another subscription club whereby once a month people locally. So again, we only sell locally sign up. They pay a year in advance and in return they get a little uh, piece of our added value meat once a month. Um, they don't know what they're going to get. They can't say no, they don't want it this month. It's, it's what you see is what you get. But it always comes with a story and it means that we can be really inventive with our produce and it means that we can add value to it. It was all these kinds of things that we started to, to do to really maximise. It was all about what do we not have to spend money on and what can we make money on, but in a way in which kind of harmonises with everything that we're, we're kind of doing here. And I would say the other thing, uh, just to kind of continue on that, is the diversification element. So we talk about farming with nature, right? It's a really nice buzzword or phrase or whatever. And, you know, people go, well, what does that mean? And I would say, well, yes, there's, there's the birds and the bees element, but it's also about what your business is built on, the foundation. So nature is inherently diverse. Therefore, our business is inherently diverse. So we sell eggs, we sell beef, we sell added value produce, we sell pork, we sell honey. We then do outreach. So we have people come to visit us. So we do public tours, we do private tours. We've, you know, we've written our own course. We have a private rental on site. We diversify as much as we possibly can. And when you pull all those income streams together, they're all connected. They're all based on food production. Mm -hmm. But when you pull them all together, that is collectively what means that our business pays the bills. Goodness, uh, and um, I guess <laughs> a, a, quest, a question that I always want to ask everybody involved in farming, but sometimes I'm too nervous to ask the question. Do you have a business plan? You know, do, is this structured on a business plan? Because it sounds so organised and so strategic mm. that I'm curious whether you've written it all down as a formal business plan or whether it's all still in your head. I would say a little bit of all of the above. We kind of hit the ground at the right time when there were grants available, and one of which was the Young Farmers Startup Grant. Now, and that was a that was a seventy thousand euro grant, a phenomenal opportunity for people like us who were genuinely starting out from scratch and needed a, a bit of a financial capital boost to get in. To qualify for that grant, uh, which was a really competitive grant at the time, uh, we had to write a five year business plan, and I I really love reading that business plan back. You know, I look at it now and I. Think think, wow, we've changed. Um, But actually, the kind of basic principles were all pretty similar. So So we did have something there to start off with. That kind of then evolved into, we started to, um, read up about something that was called holistic management, which is a, a sort of a framework designed by a chap called Alan Savory. Mm. And it's not necessarily a framework for farming. It's a framework for, for business, I would say. You know, he does, there's obviously kind of elements of farming in it, but generally it's a framework for business. And it looks at you and it looks at you and who you are, what you want out of your life, and then you build out from there. So you look at things like your financial capital, your social capital, your you know environmental capital, all that kind of stuff. So we did training in that in 2019. And I think that was a really crucial moment for us to really go, what what are we doing here? Where, where are we going with this? And I'd say that that was the kind of the last point at which we really kind of formally tried to sit down and do something. Since then, it's just sort of kind of grown arms and legs. So we should probably sit down again, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> Try and pull it all together. <laughs> Oh, no, it's, 
it's, I'm always curious because um, many people who've been farming since, you know, forever mm. have probably never had an iteration of a business plan. And because mm. you're newer to it, I, I'm, I'm always curious for, for the answer. And, and partly because I'm a bit sad and I, I love a bit of a plan and I love to write things down and know where I'm going. But sure. uh, accepting the fact that thing, things evolve. Yeah. So your model is very much selling direct to consumer. Yeah which I'm kind of curious about. We've got an episode coming up next week, which is the opposite. It's looking at uh, the supermarket side of things and the volatility within within big scale retail. Mm-hmm. What is it about selling direct to consumer that, I guess, makes you passionate to keep doing what you do? I think it's really building that relationship with the people who really support and genuinely care about what it is that you're doing. You know, I, I'm so conscious of seeing things as they evolve in the farming world and seeing you know prices go up and then prices go down and then prices go up and then prices go down and I think as a business person if that's kind of how we're going to talk about in context I think gosh how do you work with that you know when you don't know what your prices are going to be when you don't know kind of what your end value is going to get how do you how do you financially plan for that and I guess that's one of the reasons why we decided to go down direct sales was so that we could be price setters not price takers another way was having that social contact we're really passionate about food you know you know in addition to or in separate i guess to, to running the, the the farming enterprises our passion is growing our own foods we have a massive kitchen garden we have a polycrubbed stuffed full of chilies and tomatoes and melons and all sorts of crazy stuff in the summer but we we're so conscious of the impact that food has on our physical and mental well-being mm-hmm. so the fact that we can then share additional food that we produce with people in our local community is we just get such a buzz out of it and i think a third reason is to selling direct from the to the consumer is because because we're only small scale right we have to maximize every single penny so if i'm selling to a customer via a shop i'm maybe selling at 50 percent of what's actually the the end value that's being sold because we're so small we can't afford to lose that 50 percent so we're balancing up not just the financial elements but we're also balancing up things like you know our time you know i mean okay, so we're selling it at more, but I'm having to spend two hours of every week going out and delivering eggs. Does that actually quantify? And I would say, well, yes, it does, because we don't look at everything purely in terms of monetary value. We look at in terms of, you know, enjoyment, you know, contributing to the community, contributing to other people. There's so much more in that that, that you can quantify that's not just, um, you know, zeros after a pound sign yeah and i think actually that's true across the board regardless of who people who farmers are selling to if if they purely did it because of the money half of them wouldn't be doing it um (laughs) you know um you do it we do it because it's a love it's a life it's a passion but i think at the same time your attitude is fantastic and perhaps somewhat refreshing in that you yeah you're taking into account your time as well and Mm -hmm. you are doing the maths to make sure things stack up you know am I better off to sell to sell honey or eggs um based on on how much um effort and time I've got to put into that so yeah I think that's that's really interesting and I think many people could take a leaf out of of your book and actually, that was a completely unintentional segue there. Um, uh, <laughs> nice, Lana. I see what you did there. You've done this before. It's I very know. good. It's, it was... <laughs> un- 
if only I was that clever. It was totally <laughs> accidental. Um, <laughs> your book. Now, yeah. you mentioned earlier that Sandra, um, your partner, is mm. used to be a librarian. So does that yes. mean that she penned the majority of the book that the two of you have just written? Or was it very much a joint exercise? Because I'd love to talk about this book. And perhaps you could start by giving us the, the name of it and then tell us a bit about how it came about. So the name is Our Wild Farming Life, believe it or not. Really, the story started um, back in uh, summer... I'm trying to think what year we're in, 2022. So I think it was summer 2020. Uh, so it was the first summer of the pandemic, basically, when we were all going, uh, what's going uh, on? Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it was, it was a summer when all of us were kind of, you know, we'd really kind of had foundation shaking. I think every everybody, no matter what field you worked in or what area, you know, you kind of lived in. And uh, we, we found ourselves having a very quiet summer because all of our kind of diversification stuff, you know, tours, courses, you know, that was all cancelled. So it was just us kind of, you know, doing all the food production side of things. And this email dropped in saying, hey, you know, would you be interested in writing a book? And it was by, uh, it was from a publishing company called Chelsea Green, who used to be based in America, but they're now kind of got an office in the UK too. And they're, they're, a, they're, a, they're a publishing company who we knew about because they produce lots of really awesome books on regenerative farming and oh, things like okay, permaculture yeah. and kitchen gardening and all that kind of stuff. So we, we, we had loads of their books anyway. So we, we sort of said, well, okay. And sent a few sample pieces of writing and you know a couple of months later they they basically said look yeah we're, we're going to offer you a contract so um so we started writing in about october the irony is is as much as i am the talker i'm also the writer uh-huh. so i i penned I penned the sort of the first draft and then I would I would get up uh, at like five o'clock every morning oh, over the winter goodness. I'd write yeah. then we'd, we'd spend all day out doing farm work because we had a really really cold winter last year so it was really busy and then the evening Sandra would spend editing so that was basically mm-hmm. our kind of life for about for about six months and yeah it's really a sort of a, a an honest story about our journey into how we how we came here and how we ended up doing what we were doing and I think I think what was really fun about it I kind of I sort of describe writing the book as it was almost like therapy in that you're kind of working through everything and you're going right where did we start and where are we now and gosh look at what's happened and it's it's sharing I think we're, we're quite honest in the book um you know at the start we felt like all this knowledge that we didn't have was a real you know, a, a real downside. You know, we felt we felt unconfident, we felt nervous, we felt anxious. Really, actually, now on reflection, we think maybe it was one of our strengths because we came into this completely fresh. We had no preconceived ideas as to what it should look like. You know, all we knew was we've got this. We've got you know we we've we've got this amount of you know money to spend. We've got this to do. What can we do with it? And so that's really the, the whole story how it all kind of felt how it all sort of came together and you know we talk about honestly about things like the first time you know we had carving and you know what that looked like but we try and I guess explain it in a way that someone who's in farming will go oh yeah I can relate to that mm. but then actually somebody maybe who's in a flat in London can go oh okay I can relate to that it, it's kind of trying to be a bit of a gateway book because the whole you know the whole reason why we do what we do, you know, we do a lot of social media and we do a lot of kind of outward facing stuff. Um, it's because we're so passionate about building bridges between people and where their food comes from. 
And we do it one way, and that's one way. There are hundreds of ways of doing it. But it's about saying to people, look, you know, ask the questions. You know, who's in your local community? Who's producing what? Go and speak to them, talk to them, see if you can buy from them. You know, really support food production on your doorstep because there is nothing that is more valuable in this world. So true. You mentioned earlier, you know, obviously because of the way in which you produce it, your food is perhaps, or certainly the the meat anyway, is perhaps at the higher end of the sort of cost uh, bracket. Have you ever had anybody say to you, oh, that's too expensive or no, not, not for me? Or do you think they understand the connection between the way in which these animals are reared and the associated cost implications, I suppose? So it's a, it's a, real, it's a real frustration for us that our produce is what would be viewed as being more expensive. Because mm-hmm. actually, I would just say that it's more aligned to what it actually costs yes. to produce yes. okay so that's that's the first thing i think the people who buy from us see that and the reason they see that is because we really share that story a lot we share it a lot we share it a lot you know we we say to people that buy our produce if you want to come anytime and if you want to see the animals if you want to see what they're fed you know if you want to see any of that you can come and you know we can have that conversation so that kind of direct transparency honesty and they know us as well i think me means that you know they, they trust that the value that we charge is viable and valid mm. and, and honest you know you could even argue it's not expensive enough you know but that's a whole other conversation yeah, to have yeah. you know I mean because our, our, our I guess our barometer of what food should cost is so low you know it's it's really difficult to to, to sort of explain that to people but but it does really frustrate us because what we don't want is that our produce is exclusive Mm. for people that earn lots of money you know but yes. we're we're that rock in between the hard places you know so we're going right we're trying to make some money here so we, we have to pay the bills we're not we're not looking to earn loads of profit we're not squirreling away loads of wealth we just want to live a good life and pay the bills that's all we want to do yeah. so you've got that element but then you've got this other element of people who are on low incomes fact who aren't able to afford this produce fact and we would desperately want to get it to them fact so how do we get there and that's when you have to start to think bigger picture you know the problems and the issues that we have are so so vast as a society that all we can each do individually is have those honest conversations and do as much as we can and just keep chipping away at it yeah now you mentioned and i'm sure it's fundamental actually to to your marketing it is your story you know it's all about authenticity and and mm. everything behind your story and you're obviously very good at telling that story because you've developed a really strong social media following and, and engagement Thank for you. anybody listening who is is kind of envious you know I, I don't know I look at Instagram all the time and whether it's kitchen floors or whether it's kitchen <laughs> gardens um, I feel kind of envious um, and I wish I didn't but uh, yeah. so anybody who, who kind of looks at these things and feels envious have you got any tips for them in terms of how they can kind of improve upon their their own social media so i think that the strength that all of us have so especially if you're if you're like say in in an individual business setup like we are the strength that all of us have is that there's no two of us right so there's no two Limbrecht Crofts there's no two Lynn and Sandra's there's only one Limbrecht Croft and there's only one Lynn and Sandra therefore straight away we are completely 100% unique so we've got that 
we've identified that. So therefore, we now have to think, what are our strengths? You know, what are our strengths in this unique setup? So, you know, here, for example, we have a beautiful view. We have this incredible vista. So we put up a lot of, you know, pictures of the view. But what we try to do is rather than just do the kind of classic Instagram, look at this, isn't this so pretty? Isn't it all so perfect? We always try and put up some kind of bit of information in there as well. So we'll have like... A beautiful view with, say, some Highland cattle in the foreground. I mean, that's kind of like iconically Scottish. But maybe we'll tell a little bit of a story in that um, thread about this is the, you know, the work the cattle do. They do sort of particular regenerative grazing and, you know, not nothing kind of really boring and dry. At least we try not to make it that way. But we try to make it educational as well so that we're constantly engaging people with what we're doing. Either farmers who are looking to change things, for example, or 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 just general Joe public who don't know anything, you know, about farming whatsoever so so you're taking what your uniqueness and then you're taking your strengths and then you're combining the two and the other thing that we always try to do is vary the content so really simple tip like if we do a post one day on highland cattle then the next day it might be on the pigs then the next day it might be on produce that we've done then the next day it might be on the book then you know so so it's always thinking you know, mix it up a little bit. Um, keep keep it kind of varied. It's really difficult, though. I mean, we've we've had times on on social media when, you know, people say things and you feel, you know, you feel like you've you've you know you've kind of just had a bit of a blow. You know, if somebody's not very nice, it's very rare. I have to say, for us, it's been very rare. But there is the odd time, and it's just I don't know why. But we're all human. You can have ninety nine people say you're doing a great job, and then you can have one who goes, I don't like you. And then you think about that one for like the rest uh, of the week, yeah, you know, yeah. so you're you are putting yourself out there. But I think what you just have to do is using your uniqueness, using your strengths, you then build your online community and the online community. I really feel are your support network or your safety network so that if there is a, a negative comment, you really know that it is the exception rather than the rule and quite often you know the rest of them will come in and and and, and kind of give you a big squeeze yeah so and how how different would it be if you were trying to run your business without social media if social media didn't exist if we were still in a non-digital <sighs> age what what would be different do you think Gosh, you know, carrier pigeons. Uh, we'd have, we'd have, we'd have a ducat. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, in some ways, um, you know, the core of our business, Anna, the absolute core is is producing food for ourselves and people in the community. That that's it. You know, so so I I think the core of it wouldn't actually change because we don't need, you know, we don't need lots of social media to continue to engage with them because they're all local. I mean, obviously, it, like I say that and I'm saying to myself, yeah, but it did help because that's how you got local people engaged and blah, blah, blah. But the fact is, is that we are, you know, about food production locally. And so therefore, I think the core of it wouldn't change. I think the what what's really helped and certainly also from the, you know, from the additional income side of view is is the diversification element. And that's when the social media really does kick in because, you know, we'll have people, you know, say come on a croft tour that, you know, we do one once a month, uh, you know, it's 15 pounds. It's, it's not loads of money for people to come, but people will come from the South of England, you know, just to come on a croft wow, tour. Yeah. And that's when they found us by social media. Mm -hmm. So, so that diversification element 
is when the social media really does kind of come into play. Yeah. I would and, say. Um, we haven't really mentioned it yet, actually, because we've been talking about so many other amazing things. But um, <laughs> you, we, we spoke last week to the couple from Farm Ness who are part of this current series of This Farming Life. Okay, yeah. And I know that you and Sandra were on This Farming Life as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did being on telly um, sort of change your business or even you as individuals? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, so I mean, Farming Life, we were in Farming Life in 2018. And really, I look back and I just think, I can't believe we did that because it was our very first year of really getting the business going. Like, I'm not joking you, it was the very first year. It was the first time we were having cattle on the land. You know, we were, it was the first time we were taking our pigs to our abattoir. It was the first time we were selling our produce. It was, you know, the first time we were doing so many things. And I mean, I do, you know, I remember thinking like this is this is absolutely kind of exciting, but this is utterly terrifying, you know, Um, and we really we were really raw on it, really, really raw. And but what a phenomenal experience, you know, again, the reason why we did it was because um, we thought, you know, this is this you know there's so many people nowadays especially nowadays that want to go back to the land that want to get into you know even if it's just small scale farming or small holding or whatever and we really wanted to show people what it looks like and we also wanted them to bring in our our passion and our backgrounds which was you know in kind of nature and ecology and sort of show how the two so this kind of like complete newbiness and and complete newbie to running a business as well you know we've both only ever had salaried jobs before so this total kind of complete newbiness connected with getting into farming for the first time and then you know a film camera following us (laughs) the entire time it was (laughs) I do think, wow, I still can't believe we did that. But it was incredible. And, you know, so many people then get in touch afterwards and say, I saw you on Farming Life and, Mm. you know, I I really, I loved your story or whatever. And I, you know, I learned a lot about this, that and the other. And you just think, do you know what? That's great. If it's sharing a really positive message and it means that people are getting more engaged in farming and crofting, then that's absolutely brilliant because that's exactly what we need at the minute. Yeah. You mentioned there, actually, you've done the segue for me this time. Um, f- farming and... We're a great tag team oh, here. Oh, we just, yeah. <laughs> you can be a guest every week because it's, uh, yeah. it's easy. Um, you mentioned farming and crofting. Now, we know we don't, we don't necessarily need to start going into to the law here, but we know that, yeah. that the, the system of, of legal ownership of land yeah. is different mm-hmm. for crofting than it is for farming. Um, but yeah. from your experience... Um, is there a clear definition in terms of what you're doing every day? How do you view the kind of crofting and, and farming differential, if even you mm. experience one? I love this question. This is brilliant. We sort of talk about it a little bit in our book because we call ourselves farmers, crofters, growers, producers. You know, we, we use lots of different terms because I see that we're kind of part of all of that which is you know in effect food production we love that we're a croft and when initially when we were looking at the kind of you know I guess now on reflection it was the marketing elements we were we were making our little logo we were like croft have to the word croft has to be in there you know that is that is that has to be in there because we love what crofting is we love the the cultural heritage of crofting we're Mm -hmm. super proud we feel like you know I'm from Ireland Sandra's you know half Scottish half Swiss 
we feel super proud that we can move to a country where, where neither of us grew up mm. and just by the very land that we've bought become part of a culture that's been you know around for a very 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 long time and I think not only do we feel very proud we feel very humbled about that because you know the the cultural heritage of crofting is one of where you know you're grafting you're you're maximizing everything that you have and you are drawing from income in lots of different ways and generally it's on land which is really really hard to farm really hard to farm so we are so proud of the crofting heritage and the crofting element equally you know we farm you know we we produce food you know we 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 don't do it on a big scale but you know it's not how big it is it's what you do with it that counts so to speak (laughs) and so so I think we we're, we're just a a beautiful marriage of the two you know we are just this wonderful fusion of the cultural yeah. elements of crofting but all the practical elements of farming and kind of you mix them all together and that's that's us at Limbrek. yeah and having been very conscious of putting the word croft into your logo and your marketing mm. do you think it, it um has a bearing on the views of your customers and, and the way that they perceive you um I think where it does make an impact is actually I feel sometimes in the farming community, you know, where where people go, oh, well, you're just a little croft. Oh, oh, well, you're just a little croft. And you think, hold on a minute, crofting is phenomenal. You know, the principles of crofting are so widespread and they're so fundamental that that I'm really proud to be a croft, you know, and I'm really proud of of what, you know, we would be doing if it was five acres or 150 acres. And I think really it's an interesting mindset to explore. And I guess especially in Scotland, because most farm holdings, you know, if you're, you know, not a croft, but a farm are much, 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 much bigger than ours. Um, But yet we're still all, we're still all doing the same job. We're just doing it on completely different scales. I do believe that, you know, somebody might be making more food than we are. But if you look at all the land in Scotland and all the potential of producing food in Scotland, well, hey, if it's on one acre or a thousand acres, we're all kind of moving to towards the same goal. So, you know, we're, we're part of a team. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the whole the whole sector is part of a team, really. And yeah. I think that everybody should, would do well to remember that we're all on the same side because sometimes Absolutely. sometimes people forget. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So if I really hope that that you've got better things to do, but if if you and Sandra were to sit down this weekend and write the next iteration of your business plan, what would it be saying about like the next six years at Lynn Breckcroft and the future? That's that again. That's a really it's another good question, Anna. Um, I think it's taken us six years to get to the point where we're really starting to starting to understand our enterprises but also starting to understand what it is that we're wanting to get out of this you know Mm. how it is that we're enjoying things and I think that's bringing in the whole quality of life element isn't it you know we all know particularly in farming mental health is becoming a really big conversation point and and rightly so and I think you know we all choose to be in farming not to make money but because it's a quality of life yet for some reason in the industry we're kind of not doing either particularly well at the minute so we really value um more and more just you know 
the, the kind of the health and happiness side. And I think we've had this huge kind of mad journey in the last six years. It's been a sprint. And we're now kind of going, OK, you know, where are we at? Um, we love producing food. We love growing our own food. And what we're actually starting to do is trying to look at ways in which we can actually increase the amount of food that we produce at Limbrek, but not compromise on those goals that I was talking about earlier. So one of the projects that we're hoping to start this winter is planting, starting to integrate fruit trees into our field systems. Um, it'll be a very slow project, but starting to integrate fruit trees so that we, you know, the animals will graze around them. We'll not lose any grazing. But what we'll start to do is slowly build it in every year. Fruit trees, uh, nut trees, so things like hazel, uh, which grow really well in this area. Really selecting the the crops that will thrive, you know, at our altitude and our exposure, and planning for the long term. And I think that's the thing that we do quite a lot. You know, a lot of what we do, we'll never see, we'll never see the fruit of for want of a better pun um but but we're always thinking about the future and thinking it you know what are we going to hand limbrek on in 20 30 40 years time how about we hand it over with this you know, incredible food production landscape that's bursting at the seams of abundance so we really want kind of want to continue along that route and and i think we also want to keep with the outreach side of things so keep having the conversation with people because we're we're conscious that we have a bit of a profile and we want to use that in a positive way equally you know, we always say Limbrek is our home. So we want to keep, you know, so we want to, we always want to get that balance. So I think honestly, we're, we're at a kind of a, in some way we're at a point of transition, but equally at the same time, we're kind of just going on the same path that we started out, but just always making sure, you know, that we're enjoying life. Uh, it, it's nice to live here. And we do, we live in the most incredible part of Scotland. I'm sorry if, if, if anybody thinks that they do, but we do. It's so, it's so nice. It's so lovely. We're so grateful for everything that we've got. If we can continue living like that, if we can continue paying the bills and, and just kind of sharing a positive message, then that's all that we would ever want for the rest of our lives, I would say. Thank you again to Lynn. Uh, Sandra, if you're listening, sorry we didn't get a chance to chat to you, um, but um, I will kind of hear you, hopefully, when I read your book. And, uh, you know, it's been really great and really interesting, and and as I say, I love stories like this. So that's it for today. Uh, Please do join us next week. Monty, as I said, is back next week with um, a panel discussion, actually. Um, AgriScot should have taken place, or delayed AgriScot should have taken place this month, February, Um, But as we know, it it hasn't. Um, And every year at Aguascot, there is a panel discussion um, upstairs, which always packs the place out. um, It's standing room only. So uh, we've kind of tried to recreate that on a podcast. And we've got a panel discussion looking at, gosh, a host of things, really. Market volatility, dealing with the supermarkets, finding a market, and basically just kind of dealing with all of the uncertainties that the sector is facing at the moment. So um, we've got some really good panellists, including, but not limited to, Rory Christie, who you've heard from before, and Marion McCormick, who used to be marketing in charge of marketing for Aldi. So some really interesting stuff going on there. And so please do listen next week. As you know, um, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. So please do look us up if you need any help. And we've got more news coming for you in the next couple of weeks about some online training that will be available for you if you're looking to upskill in a host of areas ranging from Facebook and Instagram to uh, mental health training to conducting appraisals with your staff, 
um, a whole host of different topics. So keep your, your ears open uh, for when we give you more information about that in future. But meantime, thank you again for listening and uh, please do spread the word about the podcast amongst your friends and family. Bye for now.